0: We need to answer the question, who are we? And so I've given you this little brochure that we'll have professionally printed. And it will take the sign that we have out in front of our building and explain it. And hopefully you'll be able to explain it to any that ask you. I want our children to be well grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the doctrines that we hold dear and why we're different than some of the other churches that some of their acquaintances may go to. Let's begin by me reading to you the introductory notes that we covered this morning that are on the one side where we say, dear friend, because those that fear God and love the Lord Jesus Christ and believe the Bible are our friends. Dear friend, Jesus Christ is coming soon with his mighty angels. To destroy them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has given his spirit and scriptures to his churches. And it is our privilege to prepare each other for that day. He will give eternal life to those who love him and overcome this evil world. Paul warned us that perilous times would come in the last days. When Christians would compromise with the world. These false Christians would love pleasures more than God, have only a form of godliness, reject sound doctrine, and follow teachers who entertain them with fables. We believe it is our holy duty to earnestly contend for the original apostolic faith against these heretics. We want to be lights in a dark generation. If you fear God, love the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe the Bible... We hope you find godly friends and spiritual refreshment in our assemblies. We intentionally have nothing in our services to attract the flesh or the world. We only want to please God. We invite you to join us in preparing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope as we read through those sentences, it reminded you of all the verses we covered this morning. Because the words written there are not Holy Scripture. The words written there are simply our way of condensing Scripture into a letter of introduction to those that we might hand this brochure to. But I hope you remembered all the verses we look at that support those sentences that we formulated. Let's now turn it over and look at six characteristics of our church. Six words that are out on the sign in front of our church by the road. That some people will look at and wonder, and we're not ashamed of these words. We're thankful for them. We're thankful for the God that has shown these things to us. We're thankful for the Bible that teaches these things. And children, these things are what we want you to defend when we're gone. This is what makes us different. This is why we have this church. Why would there be 500 Baptist churches in Greenville County, South Carolina? They ought to collapse into each other and have just a few. Why would they have 500 in some respects? Why don't we join one of them? Because the Lord has shown us things from His Scriptures that we want to be faithful to. So I hope everyone will listen now and I hope that we can have pleasure at reviewing what the Lord has taught us from His Word. First of all, we are Baptists. We're Baptists by conviction and we're thankful to be Baptists and we're not ashamed to be Baptists. Many Baptist churches today are taking off the name Baptist because they're ashamed to be Baptists. Because Baptists are a despised group of people. Instead of being called the Baptist church in a particular area, they're now called the so-and-so fellowship. They're called Brookwood. They take on other names because they don't want the name Baptist, and often they don't even want the name church. They want to be called some sort of a fellowship, and they don't want that word Baptist out there in order to make it more comfortable for those to attend who may not be Baptists. We don't want to make it very comfortable for those who aren't Baptists because we believe that the Bible teaches baptism in a certain way. And it's not that we want to make people uncomfortable. It's just that we want to stand for the Word of God. We read of a man that the God sent. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his name was John the Baptist. He wasn't John the Methodist because the Methodists weren't around for 1,700 years until the Wesleys came along. He wasn't John the Lutheran, because Martin Luther wasn't around for 1,500 years. He wasn't John the Presbyterian, because John Knox and John Calvin were still 1,600 years away. And he certainly wasn't John the Catholic, because Mary was not a perpetual virgin and had not been assumed into heaven. He was John the Baptist. And the Bible says he was John the Baptist for a reason. He baptized in a certain way. He dipped people underwater in the baptism of repentance. And he baptized the Lord Jesus Christ, so Jesus was a Baptist. And he baptized the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, so Mary was a Baptist. And he baptized the apostles, so they were Baptists. And those Baptist apostles baptized ministers who baptized us. And so we're Baptists. We are Baptists like John the Baptist. We're not Baptists like any sort of denomination. We don't we don't mean the word Baptist in the way of the Southern Baptist Convention or in the general association of regular Baptist churches. There are three hundred Baptist denominations in America. We don't align with any one of them. We're Baptists by because the Bible tells us to be Baptist by the way we baptize. We're Baptists like John the Baptist, our Lord, his apostles, and many martyrs. We only baptize believers and we only do that by immersion. And that sets us apart right there. In the world today, there are 2 billion so-called Christians. The earth's population is now over 6 billion. 2 billion of them are Christians. So-called Christians. Now listen to me. 2 billion claim to be Christians. 1.1 billion of those are Catholics. Then you have the Orthodox of several hundred million. Then you have the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Anglicans, the Episcopalians, and the rest. Now, brethren, out of 2 billion, 1.9 billion can't even figure out the doctrine of baptism. They sprinkle babies. That is a terrible travesty on the Word of God. There is no baby getting any baptism of any sort in the New Testament, and no one was ever baptized by a sprinkling or pouring of water in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ was taken down into the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and he was baptized there, and then he came up out of the river. Philip the Evangelist baptized the Ethiopian eunuch by taking him down into the water and bringing him up out of the water. Let's look in our Bibles at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. You know, the little line that I have below each of these paragraphs that says proof is short. You know I would like to put about four lines of verses. So I'm giving you a few extras, and there's many more that I'm not going to give you. Tonight, we don't have time. We are Baptists, like John the Baptist. Yes. We love the doctrine of baptism and we believe it's very, very important. We do not believe that it is necessary for the eternal salvation of any soul because Baptists have never believed that. Amen. We know that the thief on the cross was not baptized and the Lord Jesus Christ said to him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Amen. But we would die for the doctrine of baptism. Our ancestors in the faith have died for the doctrine of baptism. Baptism. Women have been sewn up in bags and thrown into rivers and drowned to death as Catholics mocked them on the shore for the doctrine of immersion, dipping, and water baptism. Our ancestors in the faith have been persecuted and driven from cities and driven into the countryside. They have starved to death, they have been fed to lions, and they have been burned at the stake for baptizing the Bible way. Because whenever you take a Catholic that is converted and baptized in the Bible way, You are making one grand and great and glorious statement against that Catholic church. That that first sprinkling they received when they were an infant is no baptism at all. And so our ancestors were often called derogatorily Anabaptists. They were called Anabaptists because Anabaptists means rebaptizers. Those that came to them from the Catholic church had to be rebaptized. The Anabaptists hated the name Anabaptist. Do you know why Anabaptists hated the name Anabaptist? Because they weren't re-baptizing anyone. Because no Catholic sprinkling of water in infancy has ever been a baptism. We love the Word of God. That's why we're so strong on the doctrine of baptism. We wish everyone calling themselves a Christian were Baptists. Like John the Baptist. We're in Acts chapter 8. Philip the evangelist is riding along in a chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch. He preaches to the man Jesus. Verse 35. Verse 36 tells us, And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now if you're looking at an NIV, it doesn't have verse 37. If you're looking at any other modern version, it doesn't have verse 37. It jumps to verse 38. But here is the Word of God. And here is where our ancestors have stood for 2,000 years. And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen. Amen. What doth hinder me to be baptized? What do I need to do in order to qualify for water baptism? And Philip said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If thou believest with all thine heart thou mayest, and the eunuch knew what he meant, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so baptism is only for believers. It's not for infants. It's for those who understand what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for them, and they are committing their lives to follow and obey Him in their lives. It's amazing to have verse 36 a question and to have the NIV and the other popular Bibles without verse 37, which answers the question of verse 36. Can you believe the kind of Bibles? Now that's the third point that we're going to get to this evening. We have a preference for the Word of God. We have a preference for the Word of God. We don't find it in any other cover sold in America except the King James Bible. Because the King James Bible has Acts 8.37 and a whole lot of other verses they don't have. There's a reason Acts 837 is missing from the Bible, because it's the plainest answer to the simplest question. What qualification do I need to get baptized? Catholics, Methodists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Anglicans, and Orthodox don't like reading that you have to believe before you can be baptized. And so it's, it's taken out of the Word of God. We believe in believers' baptism as Baptists. We only baptize believers. Brethren, we have had ancestors that stood for this doctrine. The Bible tells us about them. They're described in Revelation chapter 6. They're under the altar of God. They're the martyrs for the cause of Jesus Christ. They're described in Revelation chapter 12 as being given wings of an eagle to fly into the wilderness where God protected them for 1,260 years from the ravages of the Church of Rome. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. This is the word of the Lord that He's given to us. We're gonna stand on it. We are not ashamed to be Baptists. And so we have on our sign, we're Baptists. And we have as our first point, we're Baptists. You know, that'll turn a lot of people off right there, but we're sorry about that. We're sorry that they are so sorry. That they would be turned off by the word Baptist when John was a Baptist, and Jesus was a Baptist, and Mary was a Baptist. If you go to a Baptist preacher and get baptized, what are you? Who do you think Jesus and Mary went to to get baptized? A Baptist preacher. It's very simple. You say you're so simple. Thank you very much. The Bible tells me not to depart from the simplicity of the gospel. I hope that we never depart from the simplicity of the gospel. It's very simple. If John was called a Baptist, we ought to be called Baptists. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3, my favorite verse on baptism. I don't have time to lead you through it tonight and show you the three corruptions. three corruptions, three means one time the new versions change the words to alter what's taught here, not one time, not two times, but three times they alter these words in this verse, because this is the most definitive verse. that means a verse that says the most about baptism in the new testament. first peter chapter three verse twenty one. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason there are so many errors on the doctrine of baptism is this simple. The Catholic Church made the doctrinal error of believing that baptism is necessary for your eternal salvation. As soon as you decide that baptism is necessary for your eternal salvation, and you are living in the years 400, 500, and 600 A.D., when many infants died shortly after birth, and you believed baptism was necessary for salvation, you would baptize infants in order to save them to comfort grieving mothers. And so we have infant baptism. Then you have someone who's in bed sick and you're unable to bury them in water by immersion. And you believe that baptism is necessary for salvation so you sprinkle a little water on their forehead and bless them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and you call it a baptism. That's where it comes from. The error of believing that baptism saves. Baptism doesn't save. The Lord Jesus Christ saves by Himself. Amen. But back to 1 Peter 3.21, it tells us the like figure. Now the words like figure means there's a figure in verse 20, that's Noah's Ark, and there's a figure in verse 21, that's baptism. Baptism is a figure, and what is it a figure of? It tells us the figure of the resurrection of Jesus Christ by reading the whole sentence. We're Baptists because when we baptize someone, we bury them underwater like Jesus Christ was buried for our sins, and we raise them up again like Jesus was raised from the dead for our sins. That's why we're Baptists, because we need to show a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. Many other verses teach this, but I'm taking you here, it is a figure of something, and it's a figure of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says that the like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. That verse right there tells us that baptism does not save us. It does not wash away our sins. Jesus Christ washed away our sins with His own precious blood, not the waters of baptism. And then it tells us that baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism is something we do after we believe the Gospel, and we want to answer God for what He's already done for us. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God. And so in our paragraph we say, we only baptize believers and only by immersion. To answer God for our Lord's death and resurrection. Yes, I know it's short and you may not be able to figure it out unless you look up the verses. And you may criticize it. I'll take your criticism. Not right now, though. Don't shame me in public. We reject, the next sentence, we reject all infant sprinklings as abominations of the Mother Church of Rome. No one wants to preach against Roman Catholicism anymore because it's too popular. Even though 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6 says, if you want to be a good minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, then Timothy, I'm telling you to preach against these things and keep the people of God in remembrance of them. Right. 1 Timothy 4.6 Revelation 17.5 tells us that the great whore, the great prostitute of Revelation 17, is a Christian church. It's the Roman church. It's the Roman Catholic church. She is the mother of abominations and the mother of harlots. She has a whole lot of other little churches that came out of her, and the Baptists never came out of her. The Baptists have existed outside the Roman Catholic Church since the day of John the Baptist. And that's why we're not Reformed Baptists, because we didn't have a Catholic Church to reform. We're just Baptists. We're just Anabaptists. We'll rebaptize anyone that comes from the Catholic Church because we don't consider them a church at all, nor do we consider their baptism a baptism at all. We're Baptists. We're Baptists. The Lord Jesus Christ told His Apostles, He that believeth and is baptized, and that's the order. John chapter 3 and verse 23 tells us that John was baptizing in Anan, near to Salem. John 3.23, this is a verse in the Bible. John was baptizing in Anan, near to Salem. Why? It says, because there was much water there. He went to a place where the water was deep enough, where He could get people into it and get them under it, because Baptists, baptized by immersion, and we're Baptists, and we're thankful. And every baptism we have is an important event, isn't it? And we're going to keep making it important. We're not going to just baptize people quickly and just regard it as a two-minute event in the baptistry. Because we love that picture of burial and resurrection, because that's what Jesus did for us. That's what we want to do for Him by burying our old man and rising to walk in a new life. And what else? That's what He's going to do for our bodies one day when they're laying in the cemetery. He's going to rip our bodies out of the ground and take them to be in heaven because the Lord Jesus Christ died for our bodies as well. That is what baptism shows. And when you put a poor little water on someone's forehead, you are losing all three pictures of baptism. All three are gone. Now, brother, we need to pick up the pace because if we take 12 minutes on six points, that's 72 I can still multiply. And I know you've already done it. Thank you. You can't multiply or you haven't done it. You haven't done it. I love you, brother. I know that. Oh, more could be said. I'm thankful to be a Baptist. I'm thankful that God and His providence in my life had me born to parents who were Baptists. My mother was raised in her very early childhood, or before she was born, her parents were the United Church of Canada. My father was a my father's family before he was born were devil worshipers. We are blessed, Father. Amen. Amen. We are Baptists and we're thankful. Second word out there is predestinarian. I've had two people say to me, when I drove by your sign, I read it, the Church of Greenville, Baptist, Presbyterian, KJV Bible. Well now folks, we're not Baptists and Presbyterians. It's predestinarian. Please. This is going to be a little English course tonight. It's predestinarian, not Presbyterian. There's nothing Presbyterian about us and I never want there to be predestinarian. What do I mean by that word? What are we going to mean by it? How are we going to explain it? Predestinarian means that we believe that God elected those that are saved. God chose before the world began, because the Bible tells us this, He chose out of the sinful, fallen mass of mankind to save some who had rebelled against Him. And so we're going to be predestinarians. Some Baptist churches use the word reformed to mean we're reformed Baptists, And by that they mean that they believe in election and predestination. But to use the word Reformed aligns them with the Roman Catholic Church. So we're not going to use that term at all. And we will soon take a stand on that combination of words, which is an oxymoron. Reformed and Baptist don't go together. They oppose each other. Those two terms are contradictory. But not tonight. We could call ourselves Calvinistic Baptists, but we don't want to be aligned with John Calvin. John Calvin was a heretic, and he burned a brother that believes several things that we do at the stake. The brother's name was Michael Servetus. The place was Geneva, Switzerland. We're not Calvinists. We're not going to call ourselves Sovereign Grace Baptists, because most Sovereign Grace Baptists aren't sovereign enough for us. Their grace is a little too diluted. We're going to be predestinarians. And when you put that word out there, it says a lot. Everyone's ashamed today of the word predestination. But why would you be ashamed of a Bible word? Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says, For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate. And whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. If you ever get to heaven, it's because God predestinated you. Romans chapter 8. Ephesians chapter 1 is where I would like you to turn now and see if we can't find the word predestinate in another place in the Bible. We are predestinarians. That means we believe in the doctrine of predestination. What does the doctrine of predestination mean? Well, let's think about the word. Predestination. Destination is where you're going. Pre means it was determined and settled beforehand. So if we get to heaven, it's because God chose our destiny before we got there. And when did He make that choice? Before the world began. Let's look at it in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Notice that. If you ever get the spiritual blessings that are in heaven, it's because, verse 4 tells us, according. That is telling you how you get them. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. God chose His elect In Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. Verse 5 says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. It is the will of God the Father that chose certain ones of Adam's fallen race and put them in the Lord Jesus Christ and sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for them and He will not lose a single one of them. He predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, and it's according to the good pleasure of His will. It was the good pleasure of God's will to save some and not all. Now, if you think that's not fair, I ask you to please have some sorrowful feelings for the devil and his angels. Why didn't God save some of them? When they sinned against Him one time, there was no Redeemer provided. It was the pleasure of God to reserve them in chains unto everlasting destruction of the great day. Right. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 told us that we were predestined to be the children of God. Verse 6, why did He do this? Why did He make the choice? Why did He predestinate us? Here's the answer, verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Who is the Beloved? The Beloved is, this is my Beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, and God made us acceptable to Him by putting us in the Lord Jesus Christ, choosing us there before the foundation of the world, and predestinating us in Christ, so that in heaven we will be to the praise of the glory of His grace. Do you think that the grace of God is glorious tonight? Are you willing to praise it for eternity? If you get there, it's because His grace was glorious on your behalf in predestinating you. This is what the Bible teaches. This is why we're predestinarians. It goes on to say in verse 7, In whom, that is in the beloved, that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, wherein He hath abounded toward us, in all wisdom and prudence. God has abounded toward each of us in the wisdom and prudence of His own will in choosing us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. What a wonderful doctrine. We should never be ashamed of predestinarian. We should rejoice in it, preach it, defend it wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, verse 9, having made known unto us the mystery of His will. Most people still haven't figured out this mystery, even though it's written right here in black and white print. Having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He hath purposed in Himself. Notice, everything is in God's own will, it's God's own purpose, and it's for God's own pleasure, and for God's own praise. It's all of God, and it's all for God. The reason you were saved is not because God felt sorry for you. The reason you were saved is because God wanted to magnify His grace to the universe. And He's done a marvelous job of it. Are you willing to praise Him forever? That's an evidence that you were chosen by Him. Verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in Him. The time is coming in the which those saved people that are already in heaven and those of us that are on earth will be united together in one body. Verse 11. In whom, that is in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance. I don't care how poor you feel this evening. I don't care how poor you actually are. You have an inheritance. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. Right. We have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Look at that verse. We have an inheritance and it's called heaven. And we have that inheritance in heaven because God has predestinated us to it. Who And the description of God, when it's wrapped up here in this verse, along with predestination is He works all things after the counsel of His own will. It's God's will that saved us. This is the gospel and this is the doctrine of our church. And we want our children to stand firm on it. That we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ. And this is describing Paul and those Ephesian saints because they were some of the first believers of the New Testament. And we can go on and we could look at other passages. Let's look at just one. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Please, quickly go to it. Second Timothy chapter 1. This is what we mean by predestinarian. We believe in the doctrine of predestination. Predestination means that God has determined beforehand the destiny of men. And why did He do it? To the praise of the glory of His grace. He's a great God and He's done it so that He gets all the honor and all the glory. If God left salvation up to us, as so many people teach today, when we get to heaven, we would be taking all the credit for it. There'd be no credit left for God. You say, well I would give God the credit if I was, if He left it up to me. Well then I would ask you this question. If God tried to save everyone, and most everyone went to hell, then what did He do for you that He didn't do for everyone else? You would have to end up taking all the credit yourself when you got to heaven. I want to tell you something about the God of heaven. He will not give His glory to another, nor will He share it with any. Never. Never. I trow not. God forbid. Not a chance. 2 Timothy chapter 1, look at this. Here's what the Apostle Paul thought about his own salvation and that of Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. God gave us his purpose of salvation and the grace of His salvation in Christ Jesus before the world began. We are predestinarians. You know there are many, many more verses that we can turn to tonight because we already know them. But I hope that you're established and reminded and not ashamed to be predestinarians. That word alone out there is going to, get, is going to raise good questions. It will drive away those who do not tremble before the God of the Bible. It will cause others to go home and look up in their concordance. Where does the word predestinate occur? Why hasn't our pastor preached on predestination in the last 75 years? Why? It's going to be provoke some conversation. But we're predestinarian. We can't help it. The Bible tells us to be predestinarian. God help us hold fast to it. We believe God chose to save some of rebellious mankind before the world began for the praise of His glorious grace and to leave the rest under condemnation for the praise of His wrath and power. That's Romans chapter 9. Jesus died only for the elect, and the Spirit regenerates only them. The pure gospel is good news only for elect and regenerate hearers. When you preach the gospel, the Apostle Paul said you can tell by the response whether the person is saved or not. You don't respond to the gospel to get saved. That is getting the cart before the horse. The Bible tells us that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be born again by the Holy Spirit of God from above. He changes our hearts. Because if He hadn't changed our hearts, our hearts would be like the wicked out there that have no regard for God. He changes our hearts. The Gospel is preached. We hear it and we say, That is the power of God. I love that message. I love that Savior. I want to obey that Savior and give Him my life. Most other men say that's a bunch of foolish garbage. I'm leaving. If you don't have a rock and roll concert at your church, and if you don't have a beach party for the young people, I'm gone. Because they don't want to hear the gospel preached. And so most churches have had to fill their churches with activities to keep a membership. Because no one wants to hear sound doctrine today. Let's come to point number three. Because now, we've taken 30 minutes. We're up to 15 apiece instead of 12. This is, we're not working in the right direction. Number three, the King James Bible. Thank you, Lord, for the King James Bible. The first man to publish the Bible in English was William Tyndale. He did it in the 1500s. He was persecuted and chased around and hated. We actually have a video in our church library that you can take home and plug in, and it's a story about William Tyndale publishing the Bible. The first Bible printed in English for the common people in their own language. See, here's how Catholics have worked for 1,500 years until 1964. Masses were always said in Latin. Now, what good did that do anybody when you're sitting in America and the only language you know is English and you don't know that very well because you went to the public schools? You're sitting in church, and the priest is giving some sort of a little lesson in Latin. He's up there chanting in Latin for 1,500 years. Is that sick? That is keeping the people in utter darkness and ignorance. Along comes William Tyndale in the 1500s, and he starts printing the Bible in the English language. On that video that we have, there's one picture that just melts my heart. There's men at a loading dock and they're unloading big sacks of grain. They drop those sacks down, they pull out their knives, they slice that burlap sack and reach down in that grain up to their elbows and they get a smile on their face and they pull out a package because a printed Bible in English has been smuggled into England where under the penalty of death you did not have the Bible in your language. Can you imagine a church that would kill you because you had the Bible in your own language? That is the greatest enemy of Christianity. It's Pope Benedict Sixteenth and Pope John Paul II. I don't care what your newspaper says about them. It's the Catholic Church and what they've done against the Bible. They hate the Word of God because everywhere they turn in it, it's telling them that they're an antichrist religion filled with the devil and their doctrines are abominations from hell. Amen. That's what the Bible says. He pulls that book out. He just opens it up. Charity suffereth long and is kind. And I start crying. Charity suffereth long and is kind. First 1 Corinthians 13.4 The music of the English language of the Word of God being read by a common man. He was burned at the stake. While the flames were consuming his body, and this is truth that everyone knows, I'm not making this up at all. While William Tyndale was burning at the stake, he made a prayer with his dying breath. God, open the eyes of the King of England! Would you tell me what the name of this Bible is? It is the King James Bible. I will live and I will die with a Bible that was introduced, defended, and promoted by the martyrs of the Lord Jesus Christ. And any Bible that is approved by Bible societies that have anything to do with the Roman Catholic Church, I need to look no further. They are not the Word of God. The Catholics have never had the Word of God. They don't even know there's supposed to be 66 books in the Bible. They've got 75 books in their Bible. They can't even figure that one out. Listen, we've got children in here. Listen, Adam, how many books are there in the Bible? Anthony? Thank you, son. Thank you. 66? Pressure's tough, isn't it, Stephen? It's okay, son. I'll reward you afterwards for hitting you so hard like that. You come and see me and say, I need a reward for what you did to me tonight. I've done a whole lot worse than that. King James Bible. You know we're Bible Christians. What that means is we follow the Bible. We follow Jesus Christ according to the Bible. We don't know how else to follow Jesus Christ. Do you know that if it wasn't for the Bible, you wouldn't know anything about Jesus Christ? We're Bible Christians. There isn't anything to know about Jesus Christ. You can't tell by looking at the stars. You can't tell by looking at the flowers. You can't tell by reading history. It's all right here in one book. We're Bible Christians. Without Scripture, we cannot know Jesus Christ. God inspired and preserved His words perfectly. Each is vital to truth. Is each word of Scripture vital to truth? Do we believe every word of the King James Bible? Did Jesus say to the devil in Luke chapter 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. That's Luke 4.4. Four. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Do we love every word of our King James Bible? Yes, we do. Let me remind you, the NIV, the NASV, the New American Standard, all those Bible versions do not have the words, but by every word of God. Can you believe that? In Luke 4.4, 4, all it says is man shall not live by bread alone. Do you know that gets me mad? They're men that died at the stake to preserve every word of God. And how can they go around taking out whole verses, parts of verses, and changing verses, which I've already shown you tonight. You know I've, pres- I've brought the Bibles before. You know I have 60 modern versions, and it makes a pile about this tall, and you know what we call it. It's called the Tower of Babel. Because they're so confused and they're stealing the words of God from the people of God. We are King James Bible and we're not going to change. We're going to stay with it. And brethren, we have six years until we plan a party. We will tell this city that it is the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. We will tell this city about William Tyndale. We will tell this city about the translators of the King James Bible. But most of all, we're going to tell them the promises that God gave us. He would preserve and keep His words. And He's done it. He's done it. We have the Word of God. This Bible, and I've shown you, you know every now and then I'll take time for a sermon to show you how the King James Bible has been preserved and kept. There is a war against the Word of God. As soon as our first parents were in the Garden of Eden and the devil was let loose to go into the Garden of Eden, what were his very first words? His... Yea, hath God said? Amen. The very first attack by the devil against the people of God, those that God had created, was to question, to question the authenticity, the integrity, the precision, the words of God. Yea, hath God said? Are you sure that's the way it ought to be? Are you sure there's not a better translation? Are you sure there's not a better rendering? That is how the devil works. He casts doubt upon the Word of God until the people of God are not very sure, and then they just go to church and listen to whatever the preacher tells them. Brethren, we are not like that. The King James Bible is your deliverance from me. You are to search the Scriptures daily to make sure that what I say is found right there in those pages in the black and white print. It's because men do not have the Bible in their own language or because it their confidence in it has been taken away by preachers who get up there and say, well, a better rendering would be, the Greek says, the Hebrew would put it this way, I don't like this translation. Over in the New Living Translation, it sounds like this. And you hear enough of that? Just close it up and you just, the people just sit there and listen to the priest up there. He's no longer speaking in Latin. He's speaking in Greek and Hebrew and the people have the words of God stolen from them. We are King James Bible believers, and we're not ashamed of it. We have a superior Bible to anybody on earth. Have you read the document that's on our website about the these and thous? These and thous are not antiquated language. These and thous are superior language. They are more precise than you. Remember, any pronoun with a T, thee, thou, thine, and thy, means a singular one person. Any pronoun in the Bible, you, ye, your, is plural, plural. So that you can read the Bible, and when it's a T pronoun, thee, thy, thine, or thou, you know it's one person, singular. You can't do that in modern English because it's inferior to the English of this book. God God did that for us. And you know what everybody says when they go into a Bible bookstore? They say, "I I want a new Bible that doesn't have the these and thous in it. Listen, when we go into a bookstore, we better say, I want the one with the these and thous. Let's get the King James Bible because it's more precise. Just on that point alone. Oh Lord, have mercy upon us. They were corrupting the Bible in Paul's day. Paul said, for we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God. Second 2 Corinthians 2.17 They were corrupting the Bible in Paul's day and they certainly haven't given up on it today. They haven't retired from the job because the devil knows he's got only a short season left. And so we have a proliferation of modern versions and it's taken away the authority of the Word of God. When you're reading from The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren, Saddleback Community Church, California, 18 Bible versions. The man used 18 Bible versions in that book. They're all listed in the back of the book. Now, when you have someone using 18 Bible versions, pretty soon there's no authority in any word because if you found a verse that sounded kind of hard, like you want to change your life, you could just go to another version where it's a little softer. But see, when it's the Word of God, what it says, we tremble before it. Because these are the words of the living God. Let's go to the next point. Simple services. We have, we certainly have simple services. Look at all we do in our services are what we have listed here. We read the Bible. We preach the Bible. We pray. We sing spiritual sober songs. We give thanksgiving. We have the Lord's Supper. And we have fellowship. Now isn't that a boring service? (laughs) The world tells me that we're so boring. We look like cavemen. We're so primitive. We're so backward. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6. Oh Lord, help us keep it simple. We want our assemblies to copy the apostolic churches. We want to look just like a New Testament church. We can't find any evidence for Sunday schools. How old are Sunday schools? hundred years. Where did Sunday school come from? came from England about 150 years ago. A man got the idea, hey, all these little urchins that are running around in Liverpool, England, we ought to teach them how to read and write. So let's invite them in after church is over. We'll invite them in and teach them the English language. That is how Sunday schools began. Right. School on Sunday for urchins. Nowhere in the Bible, and it's only 150 years old. Baptist for 2,000 years, never had a Sunday school. Do you know where children need to be? They need to be right in here, hearing the Word of God. You say they can't understand. Well, then come and tell me that in private, and I'll dumb down my sermons. They can't understand. And as they get older, they'll understand more and more. Do you know that a 100 years ago, all 12 grades went to the same one-room school room, schoolhouse? All 12 grades sat there because little Johnny that it was only in the first grade... He was hearing what she was saying to that 10th grader over there and he kept hearing it in the 2nd grade and he heard it in the 3rd grade and he heard it in the 4th. Do you know what he was like by the time he got to the 10th grade? He taught the teacher. Because there is a residual learning process that takes place. We haven't advanced by taking all of our 6-year-olds and putting them with 6-year-olds. Do you know what you get? A 3-year-old. They all act like 3-year-olds when you put all 6-year-olds together. You put a 6-year-old with a 10th grader who's 16 years old? (laughs) it's a different learning experience, children. Mm -hmm. We want our children in here where they hear the Word of God. When we went to Nehemiah chapter 8 and saw a real Bible preaching service, was the whole family there? Everyone with understanding was there. Only the infants were left at home with nursemaids. We want the whole church together. That's That's just the point of Sunday schools. But when somebody finds out we don't have a Sunday school, they think we're nuts. But there was no Baptist church on earth that had a Sunday school just 150 years ago. Not one. Not ever. And we tell them we want our families together because we want our children taught the Word of God. We don't want them doing cutouts of Barbie and Joseph and having graham crackers and milk. We want them hearing the Word of God. We want them to sit there in that pew and know that daddy and mommy are listening very closely to that man thundering up there from the Word of God. And As they grow up, seeing that over and over again, guess what? They think the right thing to do is to go to church and sit in a pew and tremble before the man of God who's preaching them the Word of God. They don't even know the difference because they've never seen it. We don't need pin the tail on the donkey to help our children know Jesus better. Oh, listen, I grew up in that system. I used to give those teachers fits. I know all about Sunday school. I know too much about Sunday school. Simple services. Listen, we're so simple. We've got this piano over here, and we didn't even use it tonight. I think it works. It works. You know, we're not going to have it there for long. Why don't we use a piano in the worship of God? Because in the New Testament, every time we have a reference to music and there's nine of them, every single one is sing. The Lord does not want a noise box in a New Testament church. He doesn't want that noise box. He doesn't want that noise box called an organ. Okay, let me tell you another secret. Go look up anywhere you can do it on the Internet now so you don't have to go to a fancy library to do research. Just go home and look it up on the Internet. 200 years ago, no Baptist church on earth had a musical instrument in it. Not one anywhere ever. They knew that that was the Roman Catholic instrument of the devil. Because that box right there can only appeal to your body. It cannot appeal to your soul. What appeals to your soul is the preaching of the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, not by the clinging of piano keys. That's right. The piano keys will get people up to dance. The piano keys will break down morals, but it will not teach you the word of God. Right. No one ever had one of those. They call us strange. They're the ones that changed. The Bible said sing. You say, you say to me, well, the Bible doesn't say that we can't play. Hmm. It doesn't, does it? It doesn't say, Thou shalt not use a piano in my worship in the New Testament. You've got me on that one. Let me think for just a minute. No, there's no verse like that. But you know what? I don't think there's a verse that says, Thou shalt not use Coke and chips for the Lord's Supper. Now what are you going to do? There isn't a verse that tells us not to use Coke and chips, cookies and milk, or peanut butter and jelly, and Mountain Dew for the Lord's Supper. Why do we use unleavened bread and wine for the Lord's Supper? Because the Bible tells us to do that. Why do we sing? Because the Bible tells us to sing. We don't play because the Bible didn't tell us to play. The Bible told us to sing. And do you know what? Everyone understood that up until 200 years ago. Everyone. Right. Who's the greatest Baptist preacher in the last 200 years according to most Baptists? Charles Spurgeon. London, England. Metropolitan Tabernacle. 20,000 people would hear him. I'm not endorsing him. I'm just saying he had the greatest Baptist church on earth. He had a megachurch 150 years before any, 100 years before anyone had thought of a megachurch. Do you think he had a musical instrument? Not a chance. Not a chance. He knew what that thing was. They all knew what it was. It was the instrument of the devil. They brought musical instruments in when the Holy Spirit of God went out. Right. When the Holy Spirit of God is in a church, He fills you with a melody in your heart that comes up to your lips and comes out, and so that you have song services like we have tonight. When the Holy Spirit leaves the church, they make up for it with the noise of that clanging box. Amen. We have simple services. We want our assemblies to look like the apostolic churches. We don't find a pianist in the entire New Testament. We can't find any evidence for Sunday schools, pianos, statues, flags, pictures, or other inventions. All we want to do is read the Bible, preach the Bible, sing spiritually, give thanks, have the Lord's Supper, and good fellowship among the brethren. Look at Jeremiah 6 and verse 16. I think we went there a while ago. Jeremiah 6:16. 6, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. Let me read it again to you. Follow with me. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. We want simple services because the Bible tells us to look for the old paths, we is the good way. And do you know what everyone says today? We will not walk therein. We will not follow those old paths. We will make up our new paths. Now today, they don't even have a piano or an organ in most churches. They have a rock band. Then they have Jesus rap, and you can go just as far as you want. You can even have your Christian mosh pit. Young people know what I'm talking about. I wish they didn't. It just means that they're depraved and foolish. But... They know what I meant. Simple services. So our we have it on our sign. It says simple services, and we have simple services. We just want to do what the New Testament teaches. Let's go to the next one. Plain preaching. We believe God sent ministers to preach the Word to perfect His saints. Most Christians want entertainment today, but we exalt detailed teaching of God's Word. We believe every word of God, and we want to hear it taught boldly on every subject it touches. Do you believe that? Psalm 119, verse 128. You're not too far away. Can you turn there and read that precious verse that we love so much? Psalm 119, verse 128. We've been working through the Sermon on the Mount for the last 14 Sundays. We've been taking it apart word by word because we believe every word of God. Psalm 119, verse 128. This is the attitude of David toward the Bible. This is our attitude. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Amen. That's the way we want to preach. Whatever God has said, that settles it. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to hate anything to the contrary. We are going to preach as plainly as we possibly can. Look at, Luke, uh, look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Here's why God gave ministers to preach the Word of God. We've looked at the facts tonight that we're Baptists. We comb the New Testament from from Matthew chapter 3, where John the Baptist baptized the Lord Jesus Christ, all the way to 1 Peter 3.21, where Peter taught us about baptism, and we look at every verse in between, and they all tell us to be Baptists. We preach the Word of God, and we're as plain about it as we possibly can be. If I'm not plain enough, ask God to forgive me. I try to be plain. Ephesians 4.14 In verse 11, we're told that God gave some apostles. This is the Lord Jesus Christ giving some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Verse 11. Why did God give those teachers? Verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. We all want to believe the same thing. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. We want to know as much as possible about Jesus Christ unto a perfect man. We all want to grow up and be mature Christians unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He is our only example, and it is not a pastor. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that's our example. Verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. There are a lot of teachers out there that are trying to deceive men. They are not preachers of the truth. They're preachers of lies. And so God gave ministers to teach you the truth to save you from them, lest you be tossed to and fro with those winds of doctrine. We believe in plain preaching. We believe that the Word of God is sufficient for all we need. We don't need testimonies. We don't need testimonials. We don't need movies. We don't need dramas. We don't need interpretive dance. All we need is someone to get up and preach us the Bible. The Bible is sufficient for all of that because the Bible says about itself, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You don't need anything else. We don't need story time. We don't need poem reading. We don't need poem writing. And we don't need special music. We need preaching of the Word of God. Your music is special tonight. Listen, the way you were singing, How Sweet to Die, I wanted to jump up and ask for you to make sure you sang that when it's when I'm laying in the casket. I wanted to... I'll hear it wherever... You know, when I'm with the Lord, I'll hear it. How sweet to die. Amen. We don't need musical instruments to help us get there. We don't need special music. It was special hearing all of you sing it because I know you all believe it. Instead of being up here under a spotlight... Pretending that you're in a nightclub and that you're someone famous. You know, we just all sang as brothers and sisters to each other, just exactly like we're told to do in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, and Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Amen. Plain preaching. We try to do that. Lord, help us do it better. Last of all, we believe in holy living. Now, that went away a long time ago. Holy living. What does holy living means, mean? Mean? It means that real Christians should look like the Lord Jesus Christ. It means they ought to be living according to the Bible. It means they ought to be different from the world. It means they ought to hate sin and love righteousness. They ought to love wisdom and hate foolishness. They should love truth and hate lies. They're holy. They keep themselves from evil. They keep themselves from temptations. They don't go places other people go where there might be temptations to sin. They keep themselves pure. They make rules for themselves and for their children. They make rules for their churches so that they stay away from the world. The Bible tells us all of that. We believe God's true children will live holy lives. God is holy and He wants us to be holy. Christians do not befriend the world. Can you think of the verse? James chapter 4 and verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That's what the Bible says. We believe that. He, The Lord Jesus Christ calls us adulterers and adulteresses when we are friendly with the world because we are committing spiritual adultery against the Lord Jesus Christ by being friendly with His enemy. We are like a woman flirting with her husband's enemy. James 4.4 4. The Bible tells us to be holy. And so we separate ourselves from the world. We do not befriend them. We will not conform to their standards. Does the Bible tell us, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what we're to teach. That's what we're to enforce. That's what should be occurring in our homes. We can't conform to the world. Let them go to hell. Let them choose the wide gate and the broad way. We're going to choose the straight gate and the narrow way. Amen. Right. True Christians don't befriend the world. They won't conform their standards to the world. And they will defy and overcome the world. Didn't we see that this morning from Revelation chapters 2 and 3? He that overcometh. Overcomes what? This sinful world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of God, but it's of the world. If any man loved the world, the love of the Father is not in him because you cannot serve two masters. These preachers today that have large megachurches wouldn't dare stand up and preach against anything practical. They would never be able to be specific because the minute they became specific, they would have a war on their hands. I hope there's never a war in this church because of the little efforts that are made to keep us holy. Now do you know what the words Baptist, predestinarian, KJV Bible, simple services, plain preaching, and holy living mean? Can you answer them to those that ask? That ask a reason of the hope that is within you? We have a great hope of heaven. Can you answer those that would ever ask us about it? We have a website. Point people to it. There's lots of answers there on the website. They have a map to our church on the website. They can call us. They can find out more about us. They can write us. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word and may we stand true and faithful to what He has shown us from His Scriptures. May Jesus Christ be praised.